Hi, I'm Wade Ireland, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. In this podcast, we introduce you to thought leaders who are shaping the lives of the next generation to discuss the challenges and innovations shaping higher education and how we can adapt to give students a strong foundation for their futures. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Beth Akers, an academic and author and an economist. Currently a resident of the American Enterprise Institute, she was formerly a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where she focused on labor economics and the economics of higher ed. She previously served as a fellow at the Brookings Institution and a staff economist within the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. Also a writer, Beth co-authored Game of Loans, The Rhetoric and Reality of Student Debt, and her writing's been featured in the New York Times, the USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal, to name a few. Beth, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Wade. So Beth, can we start by diving into your own experience with higher education? How you decided to go to school, where you went and why, and what set you off on the path you've been on? Well, so I was not I wouldn't say an exceptional student in high school. I did okay, (laughs) but I wasn't academically focused. Um, When I went off to school, I sort of knew that I needed college as a bridge to become financially independent, but I felt very kind of frustrated by the process. And I kept getting advice, like follow your dream and, you know, find your passion. And, And so that led me to a very expensive liberal arts college in upstate New York, where I had chosen to attend because they had a fantastic musical theater program, even though I had no disillusions that I had any sort of talent that would allow me to participate in that. After about a year of taking out student loans um, for what felt like summer camp to me, I realized that I had taken a class in economics (laughs) that my parents had had kind of forced me into, they said, well, if you're going to be at the school, you need to take something practical. Um, and so maybe if you get a business minor, you'll be able to get a job someday. And so <laughs> they were kind of right because I took a first year economics course that I just felt like, you know, made so much sense to me. And I realized I was probably the only one in the room who felt that way, <laughs> which seems like an indication that this was something I should pursue further. And so um, I got myself out of that very expensive environment that I really, you know, wasn't sure why I was there in the first place, went to the state school um, nearest where I grew up, um, SUNY Albany, and threw myself into studying economics. I had a sense that that would be a pathway to some sort of job. I wasn't quite sure what it would be coming from a family, you know, with kind of more practical higher education experience, like engineers, or my mom was a chemist. And so I had a sense that this was a path and and I dove right in and um, it got me to where I am today with a few other twists and turns along the way. I had a very similar experience. I took an econ 100 class and went, oh, this is for me. I'm, I'm home. Mm-hmm. And just yeah. clicked. And, I, and you can look around the room and there's, you know, 38 other kids for whom it's like, not so much. Right. Yeah. Right. Their thing, but for me, it definitely sort of resonated. So, so economics is the path, but you, you sort of specialized in the econ of higher ed. Yeah. Right? How did you, how did you make that sort of not pivot, but that specialization? Yeah, so I had in mind that I was going to become an economics professor. I, I felt very inspired by that Econ 101 professor I had who who wore a fanny pack to carry all of his chalk around and constantly had like hand marks on his butt from chalk and thought, yes, that's what I want to be. I know that's not a typical inspiration story, but that's what it was. And so I went straight from undergrad to graduate school and started a PhD which in retrospect was a mistake. Um, I didn't know a lot about the world. I, I didn't even have a practice of reading the newspaper. I'd been, you know, a very bookish, you know, student. I studied math and then I was then thrown into a world where I, I was told, okay, now write a dissertation. And I, I had no clue what to write. I didn't have anything to say about the world quite yet. So 
I kind of scrambled to look for opportunities to take a break from grad school. And I was very lucky to have um, one fall into my lap, which was to go and work in the White House for a year. Um, this was at the end of the Bush administration. So I expected sort of a quiet year. Um, in the end, it turned out that there was a little known student loan crisis at that time, which was that private lenders who were at that time making federal student loans were saying they couldn't make loans because of the liquidity crisis at the time. And so I was on a team that was tasked with implementing some emergency legislation that would allow loans to continue to be made for the fall. And it succeeded. I mean, the legislation was good. The implementation was good. And, and I don't think most people knew there was a crisis at that time, which I think is for government, a pretty huge success. <laughs> and so after spending that year kind of um, with a deep dive in higher ed finance, I went back to grad school and suddenly had something to say about something. And that something was higher ed finance. And so I wrote my dissertation in that area and then have been really lucky to continue to have opportunities to study and pontificate about, about that space. How, how crucial do you think the government's role is when it comes to pursuing change in higher ed? Ah, change in higher ed. I mean, I, I'm kind of a conservative style economist. So I feel like you know, it's critically important that we have um, access to, to higher education in the United States because it is a the primary mechanism for social mobility. And in the absence of, you know, any sort of tremendous safety nets like might exist in more socialized nations, um, that seems just critically important to me. So I always come back to say, like, the government's main role is to make sure that those pathways exist. Um, the primary way that we do that is through subsidies, um, Pell Grants, and the making available financing that the private market would not provide um, in the absence of government intervention. And then, you know, in terms of innovation and, and change, that's that's a really hard one. I think that um, that's something that we're always grappling with. Um, you know, you kind of, when you come from that very theoretical basis, you're thinking, okay, we want to know what, we already know what works, right? That's like the presumption and we can just put some money behind it. Um, in practice, we see some things that we're putting money behind are working and other things are not. And, and there's some things on the horizon that might work, uh, but we don't necessarily have a mechanism for getting our federal resources behind that. Um, so, you know, I think that's an open question. That's one that I'm grappling with. How do you kind of open the purse strings a little bit for innovative models, whether they be of financing or of education, so that we can promote change, um, you know, as we learn more about what works in education. Do you think the, uh, you know, the old political phrase is never waste a crisis. Do you, do you think the pandemic has opened people to more innovation in higher education or closed them off? Yeah. Um, and, and are things sort of better or worse as a result? I'm trying to be really optimistic um, that what happened with the switch to virtual learning during the pandemic really opened people's minds to alternative forms of education. And I like to always say, like, you know, prior to the pandemic, you had college leadership kind of saying like, yeah, college is so expensive because we've got to offer this really comprehensive experience. You got to come to the campus. You got to, you know, sit in the the lazy river next to your philosophy professor and kind of chit chat over an espresso. Like it's, it's all of these things that make education magical. And in some way that's really true, but then the pandemic pressed them to say, okay, we've switched to online education and no, we're not reducing the price because actually you're still getting the, the full thing. You're getting the, the degree that you're paying for. And so I think that pushed a lot of consumers of education, whether it be parents or students, to say, what am I paying for and why am I paying for it? And I think when that happens, you open a window for 
new models of education that don't look like traditional education to kind of step in and say, Hey, so you don't like that. You're paying for that lazy river and the climbing wall and the espresso with your faculty, which I don't think ever actually happens, but you know, then, then come here, we've got something that looks a little different and maybe it's a better fit for what it is that you're looking for. And so I'm optimistic that, you know, this was another kind of gentle shove in that direction for consumers. Given your specialization as an economist, um, what do you think about the financial commitment of college? I think you and I agree that college pays off, mm-hmm. but um, but most of the innovation that I see e- even being attempted in the space mm-hmm. is still about sort of reducing costs or finding alternative financing mechanisms. Is college too expensive? What do you see out there that, that makes you hopeful? So, you know, for a long time, I was going around like the DC public speaking circuit and saying like, college is not too expensive. Look, you know, it's like bachelor's degree is worth over a million dollars. People aren't paying nearly that much to get it. So like, it's a great ROI. Like what's the problem here? It turns out that's not a really satisfying story for people to hear because they feel like something is really wrong and it does have to do with the price tag. And, you know, I've come come around to a framing of the problem that I think is really similar to yours, Wade, which is to say, um, college is not too expensive. College is too risky. And so, you know, I think that's important. It's not just semantics because when you frame the problem that way, you come to really different solutions than the ones that are, you know, currently on the table, especially in Washington. So we're talking about making college free, canceling student loans. And, and that all implies that the price is too big, right? And, and rather than um, trying to reduce the financial burden of college when it doesn't pay off, which is risk. Yeah. We, we, um, we quote you a lot in some of our papers. Some of your researchers said, look, the average student's paying 181 bucks a month in their student loan. Like an average student borrows seven grand a year, graduates with 35,000 debt after five years, mm-hmm. takes 21 years to pay it back, but the, the payment's 200 bucks a month, you know? Yeah. And, and you can make that payment if you graduated. The problem as we articulated is that you're an individual, not an average. Mm-hmm. And so if it doesn't work for you, well, that's a different scenario than, than it working an average, right? Right. Um, and right. So, so, yeah, I think that recasting it as risk is obviously something that we, we feel passionately about. What do you think needs to be done to continue to ensure that college is accessible to everyone, mm-hmm. that debt doesn't hold people back, and that we can mitigate that risk? Obviously, I mean, we have an idea, right? But like, what, what else do you hear? What else do you see that, that might help address that for people so that they can access, you know, well, first and foremost, from a policy perspective, you need to fix the safety nets that already exist, right? That's kind of baseline. So we've got income-driven repayment, which in theory is offers kind of an insurance policy for, for people who borrow to pay their degree, but we know it's not working that well. Um, so we could fix that quite easily, streamline the policy, have there be one income-driven repayment program that we can easily publicize and make sure that people understand that would go a long way. But I'm also really excited about what's happening in the, you know, the space outside of policy, which is your world, Wade, which are these innovative financial products that basically offer the type of consumer insurance that we're really used to and comfortable with in other spaces, but less so in education. So kind of the beginning of that, at least in terms of my interest, was when I started following the discussion about income share agreements 
gosh, it was must have been almost a decade ago now when I think Purdue was bringing a lot of people together to talk about how can an income share agreement offer the sort of protection um, that we're talking about, protection from that downside risk that they, you know, a student borrows, but their degree doesn't pay. And then how do you make sure that they're not stuck underwater with that investment for the long run? So, you know, I've over time seen um, that that space is a bit larger than income share agreements. I also am really keen on following, you know, your work with with degree insurance. I like that it's very plainly advertised as insurance because I think that's a helpful descriptor and it helps people realize like what is the mechanism um, really trying to do. But I also like things like um, the wage guarantees or job placement guarantees that we're seeing at other institutions. Ardeo is behind a lot of that as well. So I think these are all great um, solutions. And what I like that's happening in the private sector is that there are a variety of different types of quote unquote insurance models. And I think that's great because different students have different needs. Um, You know, their downside risk is different. And so it's great that we're seeing that institutions can offer financial products that are delivering the service that their students actually want or need. I often compare the Apple store to Radio Shack, right? Like the, the shopping experience is better at the Apple store. It's easier to understand what you're getting. You got small, medium, and large, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's in memory or chip speed or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, Radio Shack can do everything, but it, I, I just, you can't figure out what you're buying. And <laughs> too often it feels like in higher ed, uh, income-driven repayment, some of the things you talked about, right? Like it's a Radio Shack experience. A lot, a lot of well-intentioned legislation that has you, you know, making all sorts of disclosures, mm-hmm. get to a place you just blind everybody. I mean, you, <laughs> I, I feel fra- fairly safe in saying you've likely never read your rental car agreement, mm-hmm. um, but you've probably rented a lot of cars over the term you know, of your life. And yet all the disclosures are there and you just sign it because it, so, so instead of disclosing anything to you, you actually get no value from it. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a good comparison. And, uh, and, and the same thing happens here. Here's your student loans. Here's everything about it. And they just go, okay. Mm-hmm. Right, and there's there's not a lot of differentiation because no no information is actually effectively communicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't know how many marriages have have learned the lesson that mine certainly has that what you say and what is communicated might very well be different things. <laughs> and right. uh, and I think that's a common marital lesson. I wish higher ed could learn that. I wish you know higher mm-hmm. ed finance could figure that out because what we're communicating and what we're saying often just aren't the same message. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my hope is probably not so much like that our policymakers become effective communicators or, you know, like think think about how to turn higher ed into the Apple store, but rather that we get some third parties who can take that Radio Shack experience and put like a, a different storefront on it so that people can kind of walk through. And in the back room, they've got all the Radio Shack stuff. Um, but yeah. in the front, you've got those like really helpful Apple employees. <laughs> I think I think there's room for private sector involvement here. I, I, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of what we've seen in that type of innovation has been... Um, not particularly consumer friendly, you know, and I'm thinking of all those voicemails I get about how I can refinance my student loans, even though I don't have any student loans anymore. (laughs) And so I think that people have become a little bit skeptical of the third party support of higher ed financing, when in fact, I think it's really going to be the answer in the long run. So we've got to figure out a way to get people to um, know what is good innovation and what what is not. Tell us about Game of Loans. Give our listeners, a quick synopsis of Game of Loans. 
Yeah. So Game of Loans, uh, gosh, feels like a million years ago now, but uh, a book that I wrote with Matt Chingos when we were at Brookings, I initially wrote a paper um, shortly after graduate school where I, I wanted to look at what are what is the actual repayment burden of student loans on borrowers? I did that. And the paper turned out to be quite controversial because it showed things like monthly payments for the typical borrower were actually quite affordable. Um, and that over time, the monthly repayment burden relative to income had declined. Um, so these are really inconsistent facts <laughs> with the, the narrative, even though they're entirely true. And so actually a publisher invited me to write a book based on the findings of that report and, and you know, to expand on that. So the book became really kind of a way to, you know, bookmark in time, what does student with student loan situation really, really look like? Because we're just inundated with the rhetoric um, from policymakers about the crisis. There are crises in student loans, but it's not the crisis that people are talking about, right? It's not a universally unaffordable. It's not that every additional dollar that you borrow makes you necessarily worse off. Um, and so you need to tell a much more nuanced story. And Game of Loans really tries to do that. So uh, tell us a little about the, your next book that's coming out, Making College Pay. Yeah, so Making College Pay is a real pivot for me. Um, Game of Loans was an academic book, and I was you know, trying to reach sort of these wonkier audiences that I, I kind of already knew liked my stuff. This book is different in that, you know, like we talked about, you know, this shift in framing of the issue from cost to risk. This is my attempt to make that framing available to the typical consumer. So rather than in a wonky conversation between you and me, um, I want somebody who's shopping for college to look at the problem in front of them and say, okay, I'm making an investment and a big part of the problem I have to solve for myself is that this is a risky investment. So how do I make choices that minimize the risk and what tools are out there to make college less risky for me and, and to make sure this makes sense for me? So I had to walk through things like, how do you do a basic cost benefit analysis when it comes to thinking about where to go to college? I point people to resources like the college scorecard that provide information on earnings after graduation. So someone can get a more practical sense of whether or not the money that they're about to spend is going to deliver them a return. Um, and then I close the book talking about these innovative solutions like income share agreements. Wait, I talk about your product in the book and, and show that, you know, we're moving in a direction where the problem of risk is a solvable one. And the consumer really needs to be tuned in to, to wanting to solve that problem um, so that they're, they have a best chance at making decisions that they're not later going to regret. Yeah, you know, I uh, I posted on Twitter earlier today, actually, that the, the decision of what to major in is more impactful than the decision of where to go to school. Yes. Um, it has a greater, you know, greater control over the outcomes and what you're, what you're going to earn when you graduate. And mm -hmm. we spend, you know, years applying to college and figuring out where we're going to go and what that experience is going to be. And often much less focused on like what, how important the decision, what we're going to study is. Yes. So important. And in the book, I also provide um, some data com coming from Doug Weber, um, Doug Weber, who's a professor at Temple University, did some great research on this, kind of highlighting that exact point and, and shows what are the returns across different majors. And so kind of pushing people to think more about that. But you're absolutely right. And I think that there has been a sense that if you just go to a good school, quote, you can see my, my air quotes I'm yeah. not doing here because we're just on podcasts. But um, if you go to a good school, you'll be fine, right? But you're not 
right? And you're not fine in this financial sense, which is actually critically important to over 90% of students who go to college that are reporting that finances and employment opportunities are the reason that they're going to school. Yeah, our, our, uh, our data has a, a major that consistently reduces your lifetime earnings. We see it over and over again. Are you going to tell um, us what it is? Yeah, it's acting. It's visual performing arts. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and the reason, you know, and I, I can't demonstrate the reason. We see it really consistently in the data, but mm-hmm. we think we understand it, right? There, there's nobody who ever bombed a casting call and they go, well, he does have a degree though, right? Yeah. <laughs> job anyway. Whereas right. when you're applying to be a bartender, right? Which there's, you know, you're not getting a degree in bartending and your degree shouldn't have, you know, much influence there. A, a person with a college degree is more likely to be hired. They'll be hired at a higher rate and they'll, and they'll be retained mm-hmm. longer. It matters in almost every other career field, mm-hmm. but in acting, it just never shows up. Yeah, uh, which is not surprising. And most people aren't going into acting thinking that it's necessarily a, a stable pathway to, to you know, right. financial well-being. <laughs> but um, but it's good to point out. And I always I also like to point out that some of the majors that we think of as, you know, being putting you on a path towards prosperity are, are less so than you'd imagine. Like, I think it was um, a, a neuroscience that as an undergraduate major without any graduate studies actually has a shockingly low um, employment or, or earnings after graduation. And that's, you know, not something I would have guessed. Um, so you got to actually be a bit more careful than, than just the ones that we would have anticipated. So I had a, uh, I hired a PhD in neuroscience as a head of product at a previous company. I mean, he was out of the, he spent, you know, 12 years studying something and goes, yeah, mm-hmm. I just can't make any money doing that. So yeah, it turns out, right. <laughs> um, another one, I, my head of coding was a uh, PhD in astrophysics. The code skills I learned to, you know, see the stars were just more useful in other ways. Right, right. So it's not just the rigor of the program. It's the market demand for the the skills that you bring to the table. So yeah, and the skills is often the, lo- the piece that gets masked in, uh, in the major choice, right? Yeah. Like one of the most popular or most in-demand majors on Wall Street is a nuclear engineer, a physicist from the uh, Naval Academy. Because mm. uh, they get fluid dynamics and how things move, which means they can model how markets move, right? Right. And it's, it's just a, it's an application of a skill set that was probably not the path some cadet started on, mm-hmm. but uh, turns out to be highly remunerative. Right. Like my electrical engineer brother, who's now working in finance in New York City. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, so what the, what do you think institutions can do better to engage students from different walks of life and communicate this message to them? And mm-hmm. then what should parents be thinking about when they're talking with their kids about college? Yeah. OK. So on the first one, what can colleges do better the thing that I've learned from watching um, innovative organizations in a higher education, this is like outside of the accredited higher ed space, is that they're successful when they make connections with employers themselves so that they have directly built a bridge for their graduates to the jobs. I don't see traditional higher ed institutions doing this as, as much. And there are definitely cases where, um, you know, so-and-so has an externship program or, um, you know, models, but I think it needs to be become more of the normal because, you know, the surveys do tell you that this is why people are going to college. This is why people are spending their money on your service. And I think there's starting to become appreciation of the fact that there is often a disconnect between, you know, what you're learning on campus and, and what your faculty think is important and what 
the labor forces or the labor market is actually going to value. And so I think institutions, one, should should really try to make deeper connections with what industry, um, you know, is is uh, like local to their community and, and make sure that they have those relationships that students can benefit from. And then on the parent side, I think it's the same. I mean, one, I like to say you need to, before you even think about shopping for college, saving for college, whatever, you need to think about what college means to you and why you're going. And so, you know, I kind of get my hands slapped a lot for talking so much about earnings, right? Like, of course, that's not the only thing that that's good that comes from going to college. Education has tons of benefits, becoming like the quote unquote global citizen that people talk about in their mission statement, all that. That's all great. But I think for most families, if they sit down and say, why, why are we going to shell out this money for, you know, either it's myself or my child to go to school, it's because they're looking for a financial return. And, you know, I tend to think that the best way to guarantee that you're going to get that is to think ahead about what endpoint you're trying to get to and work backwards and figure out what's the least expensive, most efficient path to get there. Call me crazy, but having a plan seems to make a lot of sense. And we have made a business of telling people you don't need a plan, right? This is go follow your passion, explore yourself, take coursework. And that's a lovely idea. And if you've got all the money in the world to support your child or yourself to do that, then go ahead, do that. I would love to go back to school and explore my interests even further. Um, But the practical reality is that we don't all have that luxury. And in the absence of that luxury, having a plan and figuring out the best, cheapest, most efficient way to get there is the way to go. I said to somebody the other day, if you want to be a Victorian era gentleman farmer, then knock yourself out and study like Irish poetry from the middle centuries. (laughs) But if you want to get a job when you're done, you need to think about what employers are going to want you to know. Right. Um, And and, I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly the point. Last question then, uh, since you, you and I have talked several times about what we're building at degree insurance, Mm-hmm. Tell me your thoughts on, you know, insurance as a risk transfer tool and how we, what you think the impacts might be of schools offering something like ours. So I love the idea of insurance for higher education, All, what you're doing, which is kind of like explicitly insurance and other products that effectively provide insurance. I think that it's so important because we know that insurance only works in places where the product is pretty good. Right. You can't insure something that's that's altogether lousy. Right. If for the most part, people are crashing their cars every day, like car insurance wouldn't make sense. Right. It only works because there are occasionally times when you crash your car, somebody backs into your car in the parking lot. Right. But for the most part, driving is a safe experience. Education is the same way, right? We know all those average numbers that we talk about, those tell you that education is a good product on average. But sometimes it doesn't work, just like you might get backed into in the parking lot when you're at the grocery store, right? And so um, I love that what insurance does is build off of that framing of what education is, that it's a good, solid product that sometimes doesn't work. And that sometimes we don't want the individual to have to pay because we know that financial institutions, financial tools can redistribute that risk in a way that's much more efficient, right? We, we, we don't need the individual to bear the potential downside risk, just as we don't for, you know, any other 
you know, issue like rental insurance or homeowners insurance, right? We, this is a, a well-tested model and it, one that just applies so perfectly to the, the framework of higher ed. So I'm excited to see this innovation and really hopeful that, you know, companies like yours and, and others offering complementary or similar products are, are going to succeed. Well, I appreciate it, Beth. And I, I want to thank you for coming on. It's always a pleasure to connect. You've been listening to me, Wade Irely, co-founder of Degree Insurance, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. You can find out more on our website, americandream.fm, or follow us at Degree Insurance. Until next time, goodbye. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.